the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to talking to our next guest. Wing Commander E.R. Taylor, retired, better known as Ruth Taylor. Now, Ruth, Wing Commander retired, has lived a very different life to most of us. She's travelled the world, succeeding in so many challenges, taking on a role in, and at that time, a male-dominated Australian Air Force, flown frequently in fast jets, escorted royalty, been promoted to senior rank, worked closely with the, at that time, Chief of the Air Force, and mixed in all of these challenges, she also was a mum. Later in her career, Ruth filled the position of Special Projects Officer in the Office of the Chief of Air Staff. She regarded this position as the pinnacle of her career, and she was in charge of all special projects involving the Chief, both in Australia and also overseas. She organised the RAAF 70th birthday celebrations, which included launching the RAAF hot air balloon, organising RAF events in every capital city, setting up RAF involvement in the Grand Prix, setting up the RAF Art Awards, liaising with the publisher for books on RAF history, escorting senior RAF officers to the Paris and Farnborough air shows, and the most rewarding project of taking the Battle of Britain pilots to the UK for its 50th anniversary celebrations. This latter task has remained a highlight of Ruth's life in meeting these wonderful pilots and their ladies, managing their trip on the RAF 707 via Hawaii, Canada and Washington until they were presented to Her Majesty, the Queen, in front of the palace. The Red Arrows and the Spitfire commenced a parade of aircraft up the mall to the palace. After the church service, she went to the cliffs of Dover to witness the mock air battle. This brought tears to the eyes. You take a listen and find out many more wonderful adventures that this amazing lady Ruth was involved in. Hello, Ruth. How are you? Hi there. Nice to have your company and thank you for agreeing to this because your story is a very important story. Uh, Even today, it's an important story, particularly for young girls and what they consider as a career path. And the Air Force certainly is one of them. Now, you joined in 1969. Why did you join? Um, I was a student at the uh, Queensland Conservatorium and I really wanted to be a famous opera singer, I think. <laughs> but I was, I was told I'd probably end up, this was at 21 years of age, that so I'd probably end up in the chorus and uh, not be another Dame Joan Sutherland. And if you've been working for something for at least 10 years, that was a bit daunting. So I, uh, I take, took off and went up and worked in Rabaul in New Guinea for six months and recovered my sense of humour and came back and thought I've got to find a new career. So I started applying for a couple of things and um, that was one of the things. I mean, I, I always loved flying, but I 
never thought of being a pilot. Anyway, um, it just progressed. And suddenly there, I had this squadron leader from recruiting saying, oh, um, Miss Burnett, we'd like you to come in again. And it went from there and suddenly it was all happening. And I, um, I think I made, I didn't write down in the original comments, but I um, was one of 600 that was um, picked from around Australia. And then they took 100 of us to Melbourne and we did a weekend of um, uh, presentations and interviews and they took three of us and I was one of the three and within seven days I was on OTS at Point Cook. So well, they, and now you, you actually, when you joined, you joined what was then the women's RAAF or yes. the RAAF yes. and that made you uh, the youngest female since World War Two. Yes. Um, I didn't find that out till I was actually on OTS. Um, and what they tended to do was get young women who were sort of late 20s or perhaps early 30s who'd had an experience of life and done a variety of occupations. But I think the fact that I'd popped off to New Guinea for six months might have been in my favour. <laughs> so. I'm sure many things were in your favour, including your ability. Um, how... Where where were you posted? You said where you were posted, rather. How many women were there when you were posted? Um, WAF officers. There were only fifteen in the Air Force and the in the Royal, well, connected to the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, and two of those were from wartime. Um, our director of WAF was a lady called Pittman. Group Officer Pittman, I remember her well, a wonderful lady, and she was called Director of WAF, and she was World War Two. And how were you viewed by the other personnel or the other men? And what what was were you were you a novelty or were you taken seriously? What was the view? Oh no, they were they were fairly good. Um, my officer training school there were three of us ladies and thirty six men, um, and. We were the WAF officers. We were jokingly called Madam WAFs in those days. And uh, we, there were other categories on the on this particular OTS, all sorts of categories, but pilots. There were no pilots on it, but all the other categories, you know, from equipment to pharmacy, whatever. Um, and no, they just treated us pretty well, I thought. There was one squadron leader, RAF instructor, who accused me of joining the Air Force to find a husband, but I said I joined the Air Force to get away from one. There you go. There you go. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer. Um, um, how can I put this? Being, being a woman in the Air Force uh, then, then, and they're being surrounded by men, no doubt you would have to live on base, yes? Yes, for the first... Um, in fact, until I got married in 76, I always lived in, um, and it was only about six months before we got married that approval was given that people could live out. But um, you were usually in what was called women officers' quarters. And my circumstance was the first at Williamtown that I'm aware of where the, the hierarchy decided that it was reasonably okay to put women on the ground floor of a three-floor block called D block. And you could put the men up on the first and second and uh, as long as you kept the distance. <laughs> was that policed? <laughs> no, fortunately, no. <laughs> uh, 
So tell us about the waterbed. I, uh, that's a fascinating. Oh dear, that that was lovely. I thought it was fighter pilots' ingenuity. They're, 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 one of them's passed on. Um, another one's still alive, so I won't mention names. But they're very enterprising and decided that if they invested in this, there would be quite a few young men in the block in my block on levels one and two would be interested. And sure enough, you had to book space in the waterbed. It was usually weekends. <laughs> That's <laughs> amazing, amazing. <laughs> the things that you get up to. Was there an impediment to progress within the whole shebang, the whole, not the WRAWF, but the, but the RAF itself for a woman? Was that difficult? Oh, that was a little bit difficult, yes, um, because... I think the men viewed you, if you were part of the Women's Air Force, then you only competed against one another. But the moment you became RWF, you could compete against them. And I, yes, I did notice the difference in attitude because um, in, at integration, um, I became a uh, flight lieutenant where I'd been a flight officer before. We followed the RAF rank system, by the way. And um, as a flight lieutenant, then there were lots of other uh, admin officers because I selected admin as I mentioned uh, that I would be competing against um, and I think I was the first to do the officer extension training course which um, meant that you were eligible to be promoted so I, I thought I'd do all things and uh, yeah I did notice a slight difference. But d didn't you sit for the offer, officer promotions exam? Oh yes. And yeah. Well, but it couldn't go on to your documents. That's great. That was the B exam. I was, I had a wonderful um, XRAF CO, uh, and, and in my career, I must say, I've had some superb mentors. I really have. Um, mm. This man had a daughter, roughly my age, and he was just so good. And he was, he pushed me forward all the time. Ruthie, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. <laughs> so I did, and I said, but I, I can't. Uh, apply for it. He said, doesn't matter, I'm going to tell DPO that you're going to sit for the B exam. So I duly sat for the B exam and I think I did reasonably well, but it couldn't go on the docks because the legislation hadn't been finalised. What what sort of legislation was necessary to, to that, say this person has done well at an exam? No, it you had to be eligible um, uh, to sit for the, yeah, sorry, I was a flight lieutenant. So to sit for the B exam, you had to get to squadron leader you had to do this, but for women officers, it didn't, you know, bearing in mind there are only about 16 of us, uh, yeah. you had to be integrated in, and that had to be an amendment to legislation because before it said that all male officers uh, shall pass the B exam on promotion to squadron leader. But the word female wasn't yeah, there. So that's right, yeah. minor amendment. <laughs> A minor amendment, just one word. Um, what about possible impediments were there any to your progress in the various areas of the uh, Royal Australian Air Force for example pilots engineers radio operators oh yes any doors closed and yeah. why yeah, well one couldn't couldn't join general duties branch at all um, and that didn't happen until the late 80s and in fact um, there were three young women who became the first women on the first pilot's course. I think, for memory, it was about 89. Uh, a wonderful young woman called Robin Williams was one. She ended up, uh, she was an engineer and she applied for GD 
she was finally granted after nagging them for four years. <laughs> she, she ended up then being the first woman ever put on um, fighter combat instructor course with the RAF, and she topped the course. <laughs> she came back to Australia, and so it went on from there. She was wonderful. What role did uh, what became Air Vice Marshal Hilary Fleming have in getting you to do the aviation medicine course? Uh, again, uh, a wonderful boss um, and believed in in women being integrated, absolutely. He was very pro that and he was he was superb with all the, my air women. There were a lot on the base. Um, we used to have a lot of social activities. Um, I would organise cocktail parties and other things where all the section commanders could come along and uh, actually get to know the women who worked for them a little bit more. It was by invitation only. So so my young ladies used to run these functions at, at what we called the Waffery and uh, um, Fleming would come along and, and sort of give his little speech and, and integrate everybody in and it was absolutely fabulous. Anyway, he then said, now Ruthie, I think that you should be able to go flying. Um, now to do this, you've got to do the AVMED course and I, I must say I didn't know a lot about it. So, so he organised it through Opcom and off I went and that was a great experience. I think I mentioned that. Yeah, be, before that, there were no women flying. No, Is that no, no, no. None had ever done it before. So when you've done the courts and that allows you to get in the back seat of a fighter. Yep. How did that occur? Well, once you'd passed the course, um, you were allowed to do that, and um, so um, Air Commodore Fleming said, you know, when there's uh, exercises and things, you can now actually go in the back of a fighter and go somewhere but my actually first ride was at the base and that was the air marshal uh, Doug riding of course he was the first flight I ever went with but other times I you know I went to Victoria and I went up to Queensland and um, that enabled me to to actually travel and it was absolutely superb flying yourself in the back seat, not flying back myself. Yeah, in the back seat. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> were you the first? Were you the first female to, to do that? Yes. Yeah. It, so, it, in the RAAF, Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of firsts in your life. Uh, yeah, I never thought about it till I decided to write it. Actually. Well, you're a great trailblazer for women in the defence forces, in particular the RAAF. Correct me if I'm wrong, but would you say that the RAAF was the first of the three forces to integrate women more effectively into it? That's interesting because Navy did quite well. The only thing Navy wouldn't do was send women to sea. And that's a big um, criteria. Yeah, Uh, join the Navy. You've got to be at sea, surely. Yeah, but you can't go to sea. But they did look after their women otherwise. They were allowed to become lawyers and doctors and and I think they were slightly ahead of us, but then when integration came and the only things that, as I said, the, the women couldn't do, we couldn't be air defence guards, we couldn't be pilots or navigators, and that all changed in the 80s, and yeah. there were already air traffic controllers or engineers, so we were quite diverse. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we probably did lead the way, but certainly Army was a long way behind, I have to say. Uh, probably still are to some extent. Uh, you, you have written the first time you walked into Williamtown Mess, you could actually 
smell the testosterone in the room? <laughs> I, yes, I think that's a quite reasonable thing to say. I had, I was a good Methodist girl. <laughs> I had, um, I had never seen so many individualists in all my life who were trying to outdo each other. I thought it was a bit funny at first. <laughs> and then I realised that that's the personality of the fighter pilot because <laughs> I married one in the end. Yeah, well, we'll come to that. Um, I, I believe your mother, when you she knew you were in mirages, used to, uh, you said you're a good Methodist girl, she used to pr do a lot of praying yeah. for you? Yes, she'd never seen anything like that. The thought of her baby going off into the wide blue yonder in that machine was a bit too much for her. <laughs> she had yeah. to seek divine intervention. Yeah, okay. Well, you're still here, so it obviously worked. I've got to ask, and it's sad that we only have just recently uh, lost him. I'm referring to the Duke of Edinburgh, of course, Prince yep. Philip. You had the privilege of meeting him and spending some time with someone in his, his party. Yes. Tell us how that came about and what was involved. Again, Air Commodore Fleming was behind all that. He said, Ruthie, I've got some escort duty I want you to do. Um, and again, I didn't know what was happening. And then I finally got the, the routine um, that what was going to happen. And I was a bit, bit nervous about the whole thing, let me tell you. When you've got to think about um, saluting, curtsying and shaking hands, it, it's a bit of a dilemma. Anyway, it all worked out and he was wonderful, very straightforward as you could. Uh, and his staff officer, his first staff officer, uh, was my responsibility the whole time so every now and again I, I sort of had, had to take her and they had a conversation a bit of a get together and then he'd thank me very much and off we tot again that sort of thing. Isn't it fantastic that his staff officer was a female? Yes absolutely and she was good looking too. <laughs> it goes without saying. <laughs> Everyone in uniform is good looking yes. What, what, what service had she been in do you know? No, she hadn't been in the service at all. She was, um, oh, what do the POMs call it? Uh, foreign, foreign service. Foreign service. Yeah. Okay. okay. So which came first? You said, yeah, shake hands, curtsy and salute. I had to what salute was, first. What? Salute first. He's at the top of the stairs. He came down as he was coming down. Nearly down, I did a quick curtsy and then he stuck his hand out and I shook his hand. Do <laughs> you remember what he said? I think you know, something very straightforward was... Uh, uh, you know, I was then a flight lieutenant. Good afternoon, flight lieutenant. Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something like that, yes. And, and and then your time with his assistant, mm. what kinds of things did you talk about? What kinds of things did you get up to? Uh, um, well, she was very popular, of course, with the young men in the mess, so I made sure that we circulated quite a bit in the mess. He was only there, he was only on base at the VIP quarters for two nights and uh, one was an official dinner with uh, the Air Commodore, and I think the other one uh, was a, a big mess function for everybody. But um, uh, she uh, she had a very broad knowledge of of the palace and protocol. She was an excellent protocol officer, and yep. uh, and so if she had any questions, she'd just come straight out and ask them, and I'd be able to fill them in. And so she'd then write a brief for the boss which she would give to him, and so if he had any questions again, she'd feed them back through me, so it worked quite well. Okay. Tell us about the integration, what happened. W-R-A-A-F becomes <laughs> now just R-A-A-F. Okay, well, it all happened rather quickly, actually. Um, 
we received from our director of WAF, who was then Group Captain Dawn Parslow, um, uh, an edict. And remember, we had messages in those days. There was no internet. Um, we got this message, urgently came through, priority message, that the uh, um, legislation had come through and on that date we would no longer be part of the WRWF but we'd be the RWF and therefore it was um, it was very necessary for us to make our selection of category and I think I mentioned we you know we could go air traffic or equipment or admin but yep. that yep. that was about it um, unless anyone had a special qualification which they didn't there was no engineering degrees or anything like that sure. so um, as I said I I went with admin because admin and HR were the things that I knew. And um, I think what happened next was that there was a, a, um, a base order, a routine order came out saying that this was happening and from this date forward <laughs> that uh, the, and there were, there were nursing officers as well, but they weren't, they operated under a different system. RAFNS were, they weren't commissioned on a short service commission, they were commissioned on a four year entry into the nursing service from memory and right. they didn't come into their own till after integration because they would never go on a parade ground for example i was the only one who'd go on the parade ground and uh, the three nurses would stand behind the flag flagpole and take a salute or something like that so they were always different and they they're um that went from world war ii um however when ours came through um the paper came out and my rank didn't change. I still had two bars on my on my shoulder, and I was uh, therefore um, put in the order that I was now admin officer and not WAF. So let me just talk about the rank for a moment. What 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 rank did when it was the WRAAF? What rank did the most senior officer, female officer, hold? Um, group officer. Group officer. Yes, equal um, to a group captain, of course. So. Equal to a group captain. Mm. So when they merged, yes, no one in the WRAAF lost their rank. Is that that's no correct? One, no one. Um, the, the flight officers like me, we became flight lieutenants. Uh, the squadron of, you know, squadron officers became squadron leaders. Wing officers became wing commanders, and the one uh, group officer became a group captain. And in the first couple of weeks or couple of months of that happening. Uh, did you get any sense from males that they were upset about this? No, or? I think we were such a small group. As I said, by then we were probably, maybe maybe we'd gone up to about 20, 24 of us. But, you know, there was only me on base, for example, um, and there was one in command and one in Canberra and one on each base, so no. <laughs> we, to, what extent, to what extent do you think you were a novelty for the rest of the administration? Probably for a little while, until they realised that we'd be in direct competition, and then I think attitudes changed slightly. Okay, you got to tell me how you met Al. Al's in the Air Force as well. Tell me about Al. Well, um, how did you I, meet him? Oh, at Operation What was then Operational Command. He'd been posted in from Butterworth um, into fighter operations. And while I was at the unit, the unit was just outside the headquarters, but we were administratively responsible for all officers in the headquarters. And um, so my particular, um, the lady I was replacing, um, who was a, a flight officer, 
she took me round to meet everybody in the headquarters because my chain of command also meant that the, the group captain I was responsible to was in the headquarters. Yep. And uh, anyway, she took me down this the Royal Corridor, which is where the Air Officer Commanding used to be at the end of the corridor. And just a couple of offices up from that um, was an office uh, where two people shared. One was um, the late, wonderful Fred Lindsay, Wing Commander Fred Lindsay. And the other was this brand new Wing Commander, Al Taylor. <laughs> I can always remember uh, that my, the, the lady who was introducing me, um, said, uh, this is Al Taylor and you've got to watch him. And he said, I never stopped watching him after that. <laughs> but still, not true. <laughs> we became good friends. Um, I have to say, it's a bit delicate, but he had a wife and I had a boyfriend. And so we were good mates in the mess. And we told each other all sorts of stories that you would tell a friend, but probably not anyone else. Yeah. So by the time we got together, there was no secrets. <laughs> Good, good on you, good on you. Um, you uh, did marry him. Well, eventually. then, yeah, life took a turn. Um, I have to say, we did have a little fling in Darwin on exercise, but um, each went our separate way. And he was very unhappy, of course, but thought that he should stay with his family, and I accepted that. So I threw myself into my career, and then fate took a bit of a walk and said, Ah, well, you know, Ruthie's posted to Williamtown and this character's going to get posted back to Williamtown. By then, he'd had a very dramatic 12 months with his marriage and the OC had him posted out uh, on leave for a while. And then, uh, unfortunately, he was put back in rank to Scotland Leader for a little while. He came back to Williamtown and um, the next year he was made up to CO of 77 Squadron. But by then... Yep. As I said, we knew each other so well that we became friends immediately, and and he'd had a lot of other girlfriends in between. I might add, and but we knew each other well. Of course, <laughs> and he was Jim Fleming. By the way, was Al's first flying instructor, so there was a lot of affection from both of us to Jim. Yeah, because uh, he'd known Al because Al went through the um, the college, and um, Al won the flying prize out of the college. By the way. So he'd always been jolly good at flying. And um, so Jim probably encouraged the whole situation. And I had to, I was given the job of, they were going to post me, but I was given the job of going to the OC and saying, please, sir, do you think I could stay a little bit longer because I'm going to marry Al Taylor? He said, not that bastard, are you? <laughs> and so he said, give me a letter. So I gave him a letter. And he then, of course, uh, looked after us both. Let's jump. You're married, and obviously, with marriage comes other things, which results in pregnancy. <laughs> you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the rules were hard to depart duty by the end of the fifth month yes. because I wanted yes. to see a officer in uniform. Yes. Tell me, how did you cope with that? I thought it was ridiculous, so I didn't even tell them I was pregnant as late as possible. But eventually, the medicos, of course, have got to tell you because it seemed to be much more sensible to be taking my leave after the baby was born and to have wasted all before the baby was born. But there was, again, shall remain nameless, there was a, um, a particular Air Commodore, he was Irish, in, in, worked for Chief of Personnel, 
And he really thought that there was no place for pregnant women in the Air Force. He didn't approve at all. And he was not going to change any of the legislation at all. So Air Force was the first to put restrictions on. He said he was not going to see any woman with a stomach marching around. So um, one could maintain discretion up to the fifth month, but that was about it. And so, yeah. so right, right at the end of my fifth month, I had to go on leave. How long was the leave? Well, because I'd been around for 10 years at that stage, um, I could take some long service leave on half pay. I could take my maternity leave on half pay and a little bit of leave. And that virtually gave me about nine, 10 months. And then you went straight back yeah. to serve? Yeah. Um, wasn't there also uh, a case that married women with children couldn't go to staff college? Oh, yes, absolutely. I was, I, unfortunately, I never got it in writing. I, I should have got it in writing, but I didn't. It was just a phone conversation. Again, I think this particular gentleman might have had something to do with it, but he said, definitely, because I'd applied in writing to DPO to be considered for staff training, and um, they rang me from DPO and said, there's no way. Um, the policy is... And DPO policy is that no women with children will be allowed to do staff college. Why is that? I'm eligible. I've done all the I've done all the exams. I've got the experience. I'm ready to go. Um, I'm in Canberra even more. No, 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 because you you might get pregnant again, or you might just resign because women with children as officers were given the option of resigning. They didn't. Um, you had a return of service for your maternity leave, by the way. I forgot to mention that. So if you took maternity leave, you had an obligation to come back for two years. And I was determined I was always going to do that because I wasn't going to be the first woman to not come back from maternity leave, sure. despite, despite a lot of my public servant um, colleagues doing exactly that. Um, so, yes, I, I couldn't fight it. I was told it, but unfortunately, as I said, I never got it in writing. Okay. Uh, well, you, you get, you become a squadron leader, uh, you're promoted to wing commander at 39, uh, you do apply for the RAAF Staff College, but you become the first female to be on general list. Yes, yeah, and that was, that was rather exciting. I was very pleased with myself on that. Uh, it happened by accident, I believe, because the position that they wanted me for, I had applied for, but it was annotated general duties. And uh, nobody was going to change it, especially not for me. And so the guy that they put in there on the job thought the job was very blunt, as a lot of pilots do. And uh, at three months, he said, I'm out of here. You either post me or I resign. And I can't remember which he did. I think he might have resigned, actually. Um, and they, they were absolute panic because they had to, there were all these activities happening for the chief of air staff and they had to find somebody immediately to go into the position. So again, I got a phone call from DPO saying, um, you know that job you wanted? Uh, it's available. I said, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, <laughs> I'll take, take it. it right now. Yeah. They said, yeah, right now. can you be there in a week? I'm there. <laughs> and they said, well, what it means is that you will go on the general list and that the position will now be annotated general list. And that means anybody can go on it from then on. And it also meant in the future, you know, engineers and pilots and everybody could go. But yeah, so that was exciting. 
and you were then in charge, were you not, of all special projects? Yeah, oh yeah, I was. I was it. Yeah. Did I, what some? What, did you have any difficulties doing that, or was no, it just? No, just a, I enjoyed that sort of thing. I'd come out of a fairly difficult area in conditions of service where I'd been in many fights with public servants and Senate estimates committees and all sorts of things on condition, financial conditions for the military, and I'd really fought hard over that one. I believed in it very strongly so to come to something that I really loved doing was was absolutely superb the only thing was that I didn't have enough staff uh, I should have immediately had a squadron leader offside but I didn't have one and um, so the first 12 months were absolutely incredible until they found out you know what the workload was like and then they established a squadron leader and a flight lieutenant um, and then they took away admin because I was also in charge of admin for the unit. So that was a squadron leader level, you know, with, I don't know, 150 personnel. So I was nominally in the line of command for that. So the workload was just something else. So um, I think that was when my poor husband <laughs> worried about me <laughs> working so hard because he had to sometimes get, you know, be at home uh, to, to get the kids dinner and things like that. So it was, that first year was bad, but after that was good fun. How many children do you have? Oh, just the two girls. Uh, my husband had two boys from his first marriage, so I've got two stepsons who are in their fifties. And um, would you Grand believe? Book. I think this is a is a good point. Is that my forty one year old daughter, who's the mother of two, um, she, um, I took maternity leave to have her, and she's now, as a forty one year old, had maternity leave with hers. Good. Good point. Good point. <laughs> How does it make you feel? I mean, I think the fifth or sixth person that I've had the privilege of talking to was a, a, a fighter pilot. Yeah. And that fighter pilot is a woman. How does it make you feel knowing, it to, and I did say before we started chatting, you are a trailblazer. You are. How does that make you feel, Ruth? Oh, so delighted. Let me tell you, I wrote a paper. This goes way back. Oh, God. Uh, probably in the 70s I felt so strongly about women being pilots and that's why I was really excited in the 80s when it happened um, so in my career a couple of times I did write papers that I felt strongly about things and was one that we should have uh, G A G D and the fighters <laughs> and again I don't have a copy which I, I'm very sad about but somebody wrote back to me and said you can't have women fighter pilots because the medical officer said they could have exploding wombs. <laughs> and and besides, there's no toilets in 77 Squadron. Oh, dear. So that was the sort of ethos that I was dealing with at the time. But not to be outdone, I kept going. <laughs> a medico, a medico oh, said... Oh, well, they might have lied, you see. They might have lied. A, a bit like a few pollies around. Why did you retire in 2000? Um age no um there were yeah, a number of factors um they were going to post me i i, I had to move out of canberra and i accepted that and they were going to post me to richmond and i was an only child with a mother to look after as well and so i'd organized for her to go to a retirement village in richmond i'd organized the girls for their schooling and then three months into the notification of the posting, they just changed it and said, oh, no, sorry, you're going to Wagga. And so I had a little bit of a sense of humour failure then. 
Um, but I thought, no, I've got to give this consideration. And I was, mum then quickly passed away. And then I had to look after her things. And uh, my, fortunately, my group captain had changed. Uh, that one was very difficult. I changed to a, a very supportive admin group captain. And he said, why don't you just take a little bit of long service leave, do all this stuff for your mum, get yourself in order and then give me a decision and that was that was very wise because I did yeah. all of that yeah. and that's when I thought no no I've got two girls to worry about one's a teenager um, I've had a wonderful time um, I'd also developed asthma and I was worried that I was losing my medical cat and all these factors came together so I was really sad but it was the right decision right decision to make yeah so as you look back what is your enduring memory of your time with, let's call it the RAAF? Yep. The RAAF was my family. Remember, I was an only child, and I, from the moment I joined, I felt an affinity with the WAF or RAF. Um, I was part of a group. Um, they provided me with wonderful opportunities. They provided me with the wherewithal to travel. Uh, they looked after me, um, gave me encouragement. I'm not saying everything was a bed of roses. Every now and again, there was some difficulties. Yeah. But overall, it was perfect for me, absolutely perfect. And so it was a bit of gut-wrenching to finally leave. It was like, it, yeah, it was like leaving the family. Yeah. And what have you done since? Well, after, um, I knew I had to support these girls of mine, so I had to work very quickly. So I, I set up. Uh, a business called Tailored Connections, T-A-Y-L-O-R-E-D Connections, which was in conferences and events. And I think it was about seven days between when I left the Air Force and when I started my business. And I stayed with that for eight years. And again, a lot of clients were in defence and that was a lot of fun because it kept up my military contacts, but it also allowed me to do the occasional reserve. So I remained on reserve for eight years. Right. So the, the, the training that you were gained through the RAAF oh, yeah. really did uh, enable you to start that business and make yep. it make happening thing. Yes, and, and enjoyed it, except that um, I realised that a small business is not a way to make money. It might be a way to earn a living, but not a way to make money. And so no. um, one had to be very careful because that salary wasn't coming in every fortnight. So that sure. was a shock to me. Sure. Look, Ruth, I, I meant this when I said it before we started chatting on the recording. You are a remarkable person. Uh, you have you have established a behaviour pattern within the Royal Australian Air Force that enables men and women to be equal in rank, equal in treatment and equal in ability. And you've been able to make the Royal Australian Air Force in its 100 years, in this latter part of its 100 years, a richer place to be. So thank you for your service and I really do appreciate chatting with you today. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping, and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. 
It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.